Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And today, we have an awesome show for you. We are going to be talking about, actually, sensors on planes, all of the AWS IoT news that we have so far. The OCF IoT standard is now an ISO standard, and could we have crammed more acronyms into that? I don't know. We'll see when we talk about it later. OMG. Oh, we did. All right. We've got a new Google Assistant speaker. Kevin's going to talk about smart robots and Jarvis. He's building his own Jarvis, and it's cute. And we've got an update on Amazon smart device sales that we'll talk just to give you a sense of how the world is going. Plus, this week we have Gonda Lamberic from UL, and she's going to be talking about the cybersecurity standard that UL is developing. I asked some tough questions, and she mostly answered them. So all of this is sponsored by Afero. You're going to hear from them later and in a few moments. So let's get this show started with a message from our sponsor, Afero. Looking for an IoT platform? Find out why Kenmore and D-Link picked Afero. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market, 99% fewer support calls, and 10x higher activation rates. Plus, they can reuse 90% of their work from one project to the next. To learn more, visit afero.io. That's A-F-E-R-O dot I-O. Okay, Kevin, let's get this started with, oh. A sad story. Yeah. So this is a really sad story. And I read it and I, I, I felt like crying, but it was also hugely important to talk about, I felt, because of the IoT angles here. So data from the black box recovered from the Lion Air flight that crashed into the Java Sea last month is now available. And basically what it showed was that the Boeing 737 that was being flown had bad sensor data. It was reporting bad sensor data, which made the autopilot behave in a terrible way. It kept trying, the nose of the plane kept trying to go down and the pilots kept trying to correct it. They actually did correct it more than two dozen times during the flight, but they failed to maintain it and it crashed into the ocean. They actually corrected it manually, like you said, more than two dozen times within five minutes. I'm looking at the timeline here. Five minutes, they had to fight against the automatic anti-stall system, which is why the plane kept putting its nose down automatically. It thought the plane was stalling. Right. So there are two things that I thought were really important here. And Kevin has got his own things that are also important here. So one is the sensor data that was causing the system to fail, the sensor was reporting bad data. And I think it's important to notice that, not just because like, why didn't they replace the sensor? They in fact had replaced that sensor. But there is a lot of research right now going into malicious attacks and how to spoof sensor data. And I think it's worth noting that there are things like physical attacks, like certain frequencies of noise can confuse accelerometers, for example. There is no evidence, by the way, of this happening in this case. But it is something that researchers are looking at. And having this sensor report bad information and funnel that through the system in a way that took control of the plane, we have to start thinking about those hack avenues. And I've talked to, there have been guests on the show, Alistair Allen is one, who talked about creating like a trust system for sensors. So basically having sensors on our automated systems he talks about doing it via the blockchain. But basically what would happen is every sensor 
that reports information into the system gets a credibility rating, basically like, was this accurate? Yes or no? And over time, the system would learn whether or not it could trust that sensor. So in this case, it may be that every time the pilots manually corrected the data, their input overrode the sensor data, and thus the system would stop paying attention to that sensor. That didn't happen, obviously. That did not happen. So that's one aspect. I was like, oh man, bad sensor data. We need to start designing for that as a possibility. The second element here is about, this was a software update that Boeing issued. And Boeing basically said when they did this software update, they were like, everything is going to work the same way that it used to work. But that wasn't actually the case. To fix this error, the pilots did what they had always done, and it didn't work. Boeing later issued a correction, a clarification, saying that pilots actually to manually take control had to do two additional steps. And when I looked at that, I was like, (sighs) I was frustrated because we assume that software is just software. But when we start letting software and sensors you know, as the input into the real world and controlling the real world, we actually have to think about software isn't just software. It's something that could actually cause an actual event, like a plane crash, like a car crash. In the case of a smart home, it might allow someone into the house. And I don't think corporations are really thinking along those lines just yet, how software will impact the real world. And Kevin, you have a corollary to this that I thought was really good. Yeah, you kind of stole my thunder because this is the first thing I thought of is, well, gee, this is a plane. It is awful, but we're seeing some progression in automated vehicles, cars, and all these threat vectors and sensors all exist in these vehicles as well. And to totally turn over control when the systems maybe shouldn't have control or reading faulty data and therefore are basing their control based on bad information. That is a huge, huge challenge. And I just, I, granted, a plane obviously has more passengers. It's terrible how many people passed away in this plane crash, but there's so many more cars on the road in a sense. So I, I look at that as a bigger issue, quite honestly, for future purposes. Additionally, I'm really irked by the whole Boeing response, basically saying all this information was in the user, or the pilot's flight manual. And I think they had updated the flight manual and they followed the flight manual, the pilots did. But the system kept overriding their overrides in a sense. My question is, and I ask this because one of my first IT jobs was as a software tester and user manual documenter. I used to create user manuals for software. Who tested it? How did it test it? I mean, granted, if somebody had tested it in a real plane, they might be dead too right now. I get that. But there are simulators and so on. Was this tested per the manual? Not how do I think it should work, but how does the manual say it works? And how does the manual say to proceed when it doesn't work? I want to know who tested that, but I'm sure we'll never find that out. It's just, it's something that has to be considered for any of these smart systems. And let's not forget that underlying all of these issues, and this is why it's so important, 189 people died. I mean, and they died, I don't know what it's like to fall from the air in a plane, but I imagine that it's not a fun way to go. And so this just drives home that we are putting a lot of reliance on software on sensors, on automated systems. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't because, I mean, planes have been drive-by-wire for decades. And there are lots of safety protocols in place. But I do feel that as we are pushing more from like the plane automations and drive-by-wire systems have been built in, not a vacuum, they were built in an airline regulation kind of worldview, right? So very safety-centric. Whereas now we've got a lot of tech companies building from their software and tech worldview, 
which has been kind of, ah, move fast and break things. And those things are colliding in a way that we need to borrow from that highly regulated, highly focused testing kind of world when we start applying these things to cars, airplanes, medical devices, and so on. So breaking things is fine. I get that. That's part of the process, but not when those things are people. And maybe it's move fast and break things in the simulator. Maybe it's an emphasis on testing, like Kevin said. Maybe it's, no, it's probably an emphasis on testing. We should focus on that. As unfun and as not exciting as that is, I think that's probably where we need to pause, slow down, and take a few moments to get it right, because it really matters. So that is our take on this plane crash. And yeah, IoT didn't do so well there. No. How about some happier news? Happier news. Well, how about some AWS news? I don't know if it's happy or not. <laughs> it's interesting. It's it interesting. Is interesting. So this week, AWS is doing their big user conference, AWS reInvent. And man, I am glad I'm not there because I would be writing nonstop so much exciting stuff. First up, we're going to talk about AWS's Space Network. They have a new service called AWS Ground Station, which is basically providing you satellite antennas on the ground. They will work with Iridium. And you will have a satellite connection that you can buy on demand through AWS, which is pretty cool, especially if you think about for IoT services. So you could actually, maybe you've got a connected, I was going to say dog collar, but you probably don't need your dog. Probably, probably wouldn't use a satellite for that. <laughs> Let me track Norm. Where's, but you would where's use a Norm? GPS satellite. <laughs> I'm going to retask the satellite to find my dog. Let's talk about container ships. Uh, if you're tracking your stuff on a container ship, this becomes an interesting option. There we go. There we go. Yeah. So they have two ground stations now. They expect to have 12 in operation by the middle of next year. Basically, they're saying, hey, you can ingest and process your data from the satellites. Woo. Right. It's direct to AWS. Very cool. Yeah. I am curious about the cost, though, because, I mean, we all know about, maybe not everybody, the older crowd probably knows about Iridium and how it's been a spectacular fail so far and has pivoted like three, four different times, which was originally going to be satellite-based phone technology all over the globe, anywhere. And there's all these satellites up there that really don't do that. They still do that, but now it's not making any money because we have great cellular networks. Right. Well, and you still need satellite phones for super remote location. There's there's two problems. True. One, True. It's, it's super expensive for the data connection because it can't scale, really. Mm. And two, your Lazy. hardware... No, your hardware on the ground is mm. expensive because it requires special radios, huge, True. huge infrastructure. There is no Moore's Law benefiting satellite technology right now. So you get these massive phones coming right. briefcases and you set them up. But it I, is I see them in all the spy movies and yeah. they, they somehow they're always like very good connections with no latency. And I'm like, no, it takes a second or two for that voice to travel up and carry back down. It's going to space. So, you know, this will be an interesting thing, the pricing. We'll see. So also in relevant IoT news, there's an update to security for AWS IoT Greengrass. Greengrass is the service that lets you run AWS or mirror AWS instances on the edge, basically. So now what you can do with this is you can have connections to third-party applications and other AWS services that are secure. They're going to have hardware root of trust storage. There's going to be isolation and permission settings that lets you basically just take more control over this. And this is really important because there are a lot of enterprises and even industrial companies using AWS Greengrass, and it's just a necessary service. More secrets, more security, more better. 
Yeah, it looks like they also have another service that's sort of related. It doesn't necessarily require Greengrass, but I saw this IoT SiteWise, which was interesting. And it sounds like it's a piece of hardware because they say there's an on-premises gateway device that collects data and forwards it to AWS for further processing. So then you can build representations of production lines and processes, say, for industrial IoT. Yes. The big focus seems to be here on AWS really making sure that they have something for industrial and big enterprise clients. So in addition to SiteWise, which is really important, they have AWS IoT events that lets you do IoT sensors at scale. So that's a big deal. And then they have AWS IoT Things Graph that's basically letting you do IoT applications for edge gateways that do run green grass. So it's basically like what I look at this and I see is what Microsoft has done with Azure in IoT. Oh, I'm going to screw this up, guys, because everybody names their IoT hub core. Core, yeah. Azure IoT core, I believe it Um, is. I think it's core. Mm -hmm. So this is a play to get some of that business because Azure just owns the industrial world because they... They're Microsoft and everybody in the industrial world works with Microsoft and they're like, yeah, we like Microsoft. We trust them. I don't know it's, about it's the hub. Stuff. It, it's hub, by the way. My bad. It's not core. Google, I think, is core. Oh, see, this is, it is. <sighs> okay. No. Just everybody pick one and stick with it. Well, just, you know, pick something different and new instead of IoT hub or core or functions. Just, Brain. just call it something like green grass. Skynet. <laughs> Skynet. Sitewise. Okay, so those so far are the big IoT-related AWS news stories out there. You also found one that you like, Kevin. Yes, I saw this on the AWS News blog. This is the AWS Robo Maker Service. And you can go have this read to you by a robot or a robotic voice, if you'd like, on the press release, which is kind of cool. It is a service to help develop simulate, test, and deploy the robot of your dreams, Amazon says. I doubt that because the robot of my dreams is something we're going to talk about a little bit later. I think this is more for heavy-duty robotics companies. These are packages for the robotic operating system that people use to build robots, and it supports AWS services such as Lex, Poly, as I just mentioned, Recognition, which we've talked about before. The facial recognition. Lex yeah. is NLP, Natural Language Processing. Mm-hmm. Kinesis Video Streams. Don't use that. Never heard of it. That's analysis for video streams. Mm-hmm. And Amazon CloudWatch. I don't remember so, what that is. I don't either. But <laughs> so you can watch services. the clouds. You, your robot can stare at the sky and look at clouds all day. That's not true. But anyway, because of, I have an interest in robotics, I thought this was neat. Could we see this move into the IoT space? Oh, I think we might. And we'll talk about that in a few. Yes. All right. Before we get to more exciting robot news, let's talk about the OCF. The Open Connectivity Foundation, which is now, holy cow, you guys, an ISO standard. So we've talked about OCF before. They've actually sponsored the podcast a couple times for our special CES episode, which, by the way, we're going to have again. So these guys build a basically a universal standard for connected devices is their goal. And everything will have a data schema and everything will be able to talk to everything else as long as it supports OCF. The challenge has been that they really delayed issuing the version of the standard with security in it. And they recently did do that this summer, but we haven't seen a lot of devices that support it. There are lots of companies that are involved in OCF, but we haven't seen devices. I don't know if we're going to see devices. I'm hopeful that we'll see some this year at CES that are not just rehashes of the old stuff that they had. 
I think we will. And the only reason I say that is because it's the OCF standard one, 1.0 spec that has been ratified. And they are working on 2.0. And I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I very well could be, that the 2.0 spec really brings more of the cloud into things. I think it, it brings smaller devices. It brings security and the ability to run it on less, like smaller, mm-hmm. not full-fledged devices. Smaller chips. Yes. Dumber chips, perhaps, is a way to there think you go. It. Chips with well, less processing power and memory. But they're still smart. They just use less power. Yes, but they're not as smart. I mean, there's no. a difference between like an MCU and an RMA7. But yes, so that's kind of what that could be. And so the ISO standard, I just thought was interesting because, you know, ISO is actually a very legitimate, very powerful standards organization. And the fact that they've ratified this is probably good. It means basically if ISO wants, it could develop a standard that incorporates OCF. And if it does, then everyone has to do it. OCF has pivoted somewhat from the smart home space to focusing on automotive and medical device standards. So uh, that might... Yeah, I don't see this impacting the smart home that much, if at all. It used to be very smart home focused. And a lot of the companies that are involved are smart home, like, well, they have home appliance devices like LG, Huawei, Samsung. So, But they're all using other things, and there's such a big audience already for these. So I, mm, I don't know. Yes. Okay. So that's the OCF thing. But since we're talking about ISO, we should talk about the fact that, hey, they just actually ratified a drone standard that is not crazy. So they released a draft set of standards for drone operations. This draft is going to be open through the 21st of January, and they're expected to be adopted later. Some of the things that are in there are no-fly zones, so drones won't fly into airplanes. That's a big deal. It also talks about like sensitive locations. Yeah, they could actually shut your drone down if it comes within a certain geofenced area, for example. And actually, in the U.S., a law was passed that allows the government to shut down and shoot down drones. That is actually a little bit controversial because it's unclear what areas might be deemed sensitive. So you could see something like very good recent example would be trying to fly a drone over the Tornillo camps where they're keeping the undocumented Mm -hmm. children. The government may be like, you know what, media, I don't want you looking at too close at that. And they could just shoot those down, which would be, you know, not great. That would be bad. But Area 51, that's a different story. Yeah. So we're going to want some clarity in that law, probably. But back to the ISO standard, it talks about flight logging, training, maintenance requirements. So that would be really useful because I don't know how often you've been hit in the head by a drone, but it's happened to me once and it wasn't fun. I haven't. And, you know, I hope to never hit anybody because I had to register mine with the FAA so they would know it was me. I would be like, Kevin, Yeah, I was cutting this out of my hair for a week. Not that I didn't think this was a big deal because it is, but this surprised me. Apparently, the head of the UK's air safety board had said that half of air traffic incidents now involve drones. That is surprising. That's surprising. Because that's a lot. But I also recall, you know, the firefighters, not recently in California, but probably last year's firefighters talked about like they had to stop helicopter flights because drones were in the way, if you recall that. So yeah, I mean, this is shared airspace. We got to figure this out. So all right. So go ISO working on that. If you have comments, you should tell them. Let's talk now. Oh, let's talk now about a new Google Assistant speaker. Woo woo. 
This came out of nowhere. I did not expect it. But then again, pretty much any speaker these days that's on the market, anybody who's making them, I'm betting they're coming out with models that have a microphone and some smarts and connectivity because that's what Klipsch has done. They make high-end speakers. They have for years and years. The Klipsch, the three, now has Google Assistant. And being a high-end speaker system, it'll cost you $499, which is an awful lot for a smart speaker. But, you know, if you want that mid-century modern design and big sound, I know, then there you go. Ask them for a review unit. Mm, no, because I'm not an audiophile. I always like, I'm like, uh, does it sound okay? Yeah, it sounds fine. <laughs> I'm not an audiophile per se, because my hearing is starting to go, but I do like good speakers, you know. I'm not going to get this because I don't like good speakers that are $500. So is your, what qualifies as a good speaker in your house? What's your favorite good sounding speaker? The best sounding speakers in my house are the Sonos. Okay, well that fits. I'll buy that for a dollar or for Mm -hmm. $100. Which still still doesn't have Google Assistant, which we mentioned on, I think in the last podcast, it's not happening till hopefully early 2019. You'll let us know. You'll be like, oh, "Oh, I I will. Got it. Okay. Speaking of assistance, we should talk about Amazon because they put out a press release to talk about their Turkey Black, Five, their Black Friday to Cyber Monday, <laughs> which they call the Turkey Five holiday. We will Turkey not- Turkey. No, no, it's not a thing. Don't make it a thing. It will never be a thing. Amazon. Yeah, we're not on board with that, but we are on board with finding out. You know, and let's do this with a big, heavy load of salt, which is Amazon's press releases are notorious for not actually giving real information while sounding amazing. So <laughs> but they give information, but it's you have nothing to compare it to because they're not providing that extra bit that would give you the comparison. Right. So let's see. But they did say that they sold a lot of Echo Dots, the best-selling products at the Amazon pop-up device kiosk over, here's that word, the Turkey Five weekend. So basically Thanksgiving, Black Friday, that weekend, and then I hate this word too, Cyber Monday. It was the Echo Dot and the Amazon Smart Plug, which, by the way, the Echo Dot was on sale for like 25 bucks. It was crazy cheap, sounds great, and it sold out, which is amazing. And I saw a tweet from Ryan Romilly, who is a voice-first kind of person. I don't know how else to describe him. He's an expert there. But he said that a source told him that the sales of the Echo Dot reached more than a 1,000 units per second. Yowza. Which is nuts. It is. And just, we can put some minor perspective around this because Amazon said that customers ordered 180 million items throughout those five days. Obviously, they were not all dots. Of course not. But the best-selling products on Cyber Monday, for example, was the all-new Echo Dot, as it was in the kiosks, as you said. So the only kind of idea they gave us on total sales for Echo devices was millions sold worldwide, and that the all-new Echo Dot was the number one selling product on Amazon globally from any manufacturer in any category. We know they sold 180 million items, and they sold millions of Echo devices. We don't know how many millions. Obviously, less than 180 million. Yes, which is still a lot. (laughs) Other things that Amazon sold a lot of, the Ring Video Doorbell 2. Makes sense. They own that now. But they also sold the iRobot Roomba 690 robot vacuum. That is not the one that actually maps your data and can send it to your Google Assistant. They sold a lot of TP-Link mini Wi-Fi smart plugs and the Amazon smart plugs. This is part of hopefully the mainstreaming of the smart home. So yay! 
All right. Let's see. What else do... Oh, oh, speaking of Amazon and the robots that we were talking about, it is now time to talk about Kevin's dream robot. Well, the next thing on my want list, I guess. So this is not mainstream. We're going from mainstream to just what Kevin wants, but I think other people will want. They just don't know it yet. Yeah. Which Kevin often wants happens. things way before you want them. But one day you too will want this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted an iPad mini and guess what? They, built they made one it for you. They did. People don't realize that, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, so I've mentioned Vector, the little robot from Anki that I had bought in October last month. He's gotten some software updates. He is much more expressive. In fact, the new thing for him was when it's cold outside and we ask him the weather, he now shivers when it's below a certain amount of degrees, which I absolutely love. My wife loves that as well. But he's got another update coming. And this one gets me really excited, not just for the near future, but the faraway five-year future. He is getting Amazon's Madam A integration. And the Anki folks shared a video of what it looks like and how it works. And I love it because you don't have to ask Vector to ask Madam A something. Vector is literally an Amazon Echo device for all intents and purposes with this update. It's coming in a few weeks and I'm super excited to get it. What it made me think about though is, and I wrote a post about it earlier this week, for people who are familiar with the Iron Man movies, which I suspect most people are, you know about Jarvis. And if you're not familiar, Jarvis is basically a bodiless digital assistant, just like Madam A. He eventually becomes put into a synthetic body, and he's a robot in a sense. Uh, he's maybe vision. he's real. Thanks, my He's vision. Yeah, you're right. He is vision. I didn't want to say that because I didn't know if everybody knew that, but good for you. Geek cred for you. Oh, I was like, oh my God, was that a spoiler? <laughs> no, no. Well, it is for the Age of Ultron movie, but that's another story entirely as well. In any case, the point being, what I saw with Vector and Madam A integration, and then you know, in reality, and then the movie where a digital assistant becomes a movable object. I'm thinking, why do we want all these speakers and microphones throughout the house? Okay, speakers, yes, because we want our music, but do we need all these microphones? I literally have more smart speakers than I have rooms in my house right now. And I just bought another one. I just bought a Google Home Hub over the holidays for the kitchen islands. We can watch YouTube TV over coffee. But I'm tired of buying them. And quite honestly, it doesn't make sense in the long run. Why not have a movable object, i.e. a robot, that can, it doesn't have to be humanoid, it doesn't have to be large. It doesn't have to be bigger than Vector because Vector only lasts 45 minutes on a charge, but just have that microphone near me when I want it near me. And you know what? When I want my quiet time, I'm going to say, hey, robot, go stand in the corner. I'm going to watch Iron Man for the 10th time. Go I, stand I, you know, in the I, corner. <laughs> whatever. You know what I mean? Because it takes away a lot of the privacy things now because you can be away. You can be in a room that doesn't have a microphone or a camera. Vector has cameras. I presume a robot like this would have cameras too. You know, I can go into the non-robot room and do my thing and be private and then still have the robot with an earshot and I can say, yo, what's the weather or whatever I want. Control my smart home. I don't know. I know it's a radical idea. I know. But most of my ideas like these are radical and some of them actually come true. So. Yeah. And I like the idea of Anki Vector, like following me around and, you know, hanging out, doing things and then like looking over and imagine like a Sony Ibo, like the little robot dog having this yes. capability. Oh my gosh. That would be so fun. I do think mobility will add a lot to this experience. I don't know that everybody's ready for it right now, and I get that. But, you know, the uptake on these smart speakers has been ridiculously fast. And granted, a lot of them are pretty inexpensive. So that certainly helps. I don't know. I think there's a lot of value in a mobile digital assistant such as this. There are privacy 
questions about this. I mean, you could say like, you know, if it's something that can follow you around, you do lose elements of privacy. Like if you only want your digital assistant in certain places, but I guess you could geofence if you wanted. Yeah, go away. Get, get out of the kitchen. I'm having dinner with my wife and candlelight dinner. You know, I mean, I think that's manageable. It's more manageable than it is now. These speakers are just there. Right. I have one in my bathroom, you guys. So There you go. Jarvis, get out of the bathroom. Jarvis, leave. Fine, I'm going. I didn't want to be here anyway. Okay, so that is our future from Kevin. Let's answer some questions from our IoT podcast hotline, which, by the way, is sponsored by Schlage. And guys, do not miss your chance to win a Schlage Connect Smart Deadbolt, which now comes in a Zigbee certified version that will work with Amazon's key program. You can upgrade your smart home with the safety, simplicity, and style of Schlage. And if you want to be entered to win that lock, all you have to do is call us at 512-623-7424. This month's drawing will end November 30th at midnight Eastern. So give us a call before then. We can only ship them to the US and Canada. So sorry, rest of world. But it's a great lock. I like it. And... Now, let's hear our voicemail, who is from somebody who did not give their name, but I'm guessing they're from the South, just like me. Stacy and Kevin, hi, y'all. I have a question regarding the using the most current intelligent switches, but in an old building. Helping my daughter and son-in-law do some updating in their new house, and he wanted to automate a couple of switch locations. Today, they're using the Atomade connected direct outlets, no gateway. Big issue, as I understand it, is the building was built in, we're guessing, the 60s. And has wiring that has two conductors with no neutral. Found out that just about every automated switch seems to require a neutral and can't be used in older homes. Any suggestion for the wall switches that we could use in an older house? Thanks for any info that might point us in the right direction. Oh, this is such a common question. And unfortunately for you, I have literally one answer for you because it is the only one. That makes it easy, though. It does. So the only option they have is a dimming switch from Lutron. And you will find this. It is a Lutron Caseta switch. It is model number PD-6WCL. And there's going to be another series after that that's going to denote color. In this case, it is the PD-6WCL-WH. That's white. It comes in black, almond, and some other color. So this is a $55 switch, but it does not require a neutral wire. It does, however, require the Lutron hub, the SmartBridge hub. And that right now is $117. Sometimes I see it on sale for as low as $80. This is a great hub, though. And if you're going to buy all Lutron switches, this hub is going to be your best friend because it makes it compatible with Madam A, so the Amazon Echo, the Google Assistant ecosystem, and even HomeKit. So it is a hub, but it's a really useful hub. (laughs) And it's going to work with all of your switches. This particular switch does not require neutral wire. It says so very clearly, so make sure you do see those words. The downside of this, and I just called it a switch, it's actually a dimmer, is if you don't have dimmable bulbs, this isn't going to work. So for example, if you have a fluorescent bulb, you're not going to be able to use it. And that is frustrating. And I, they used to have a switch that didn't require neutral wire. Now they do not appear to have one. And I suspect that these aren't going to be around that much longer. I'm not saying days or weeks, but... I don't know about that. Luchon keeps them on their website. They talk about it being a perfect option for an older home. 
So I, yeah. I don't know. Which, yeah, there's obviously there's plenty of older homes out there. And it's interesting you said it only works, you know, as a, with dimming lights. I mean, it does have an on off, two buttons, one for on, one for off at the top and bottom, and then has the dimmer in the middle. So if you use a dimmer though with incompatible lights, the yeah. lights will flicker and make noise and the dimmer. Yes. It's not a, yes. it's not a good smart thing to do. I was just thinking you're saying this is a dimmer, which it is, but it could be used as a switch, right? Only on lights. So the caveat is your lights have to be dimmable. You can't put non-dimmable lights with this switch. I did not know that. Yes. I have done that before. It's a bad idea. I have not, obviously. (laughs) Don't do that. So that is the caveat. If you have weird lights, if you have normal lights, like most LEDs are dimmable LEDs. So, you know, dimmable LEDs. I think like lights that won't work are fluorescence. Sure. Halogen lights. That makes sense. So those are going to be a little bit more difficult, but- Normal lights. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) That's my answer for you. So easy answer. It is expensive, but I recommend Lutron lights to everybody who asks me if they're installing switches. I know it's expensive. These lights are phenomenal. They just work. They work well. And the Lutron support is amazeballs. So, you know, I know you guys know I love these, but, you know, for this case, it is literally the only option. So there you go. Problem solved. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of the news segment of the show. And now we're going to move to our guest, who is Gonda Lamberic from UL. And we're going to be talking about the UL cybersecurity standard. Gosh, where is it? Why does it cost so much? What are you guys trying to do? So you will like this, especially if you like standards and certifications. And who doesn't? So let's get started with this. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, we are taking a break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Afero. And I've got Joe Britt, who is the CEO of Afero, here to talk to us. So first off, would you remind our audience who Afero is? Afero is fundamentally a platform for connecting all kinds of sensors and devices to the cloud. But the most important attribute of Afero is that the way it's put together, everything just works. You know, we also feel like it's very beautifully designed, easy to use, and very, very secure. And our customers tell us that it's the best choice for great end-user experience and developer productivity. Now, you may remember that many of us at Afero came from places like Apple, Nest, Google, Android, Netflix, and we really wanted to bring the best of those engineering and design disciplines to the world of IoT. Excellent. So who are some of your customers and why did they pick Afero? Customers like Kenmore and D-Link chose Afero really because of three key reasons. Time to market, they can cut down their development time by as much as 80%. Technology reuse, their engineers are able to reuse over 90% of their work from project to project. For example, Kenmore has connected more than 25 appliance models in less than two years. And then finally, customer experience. Our partners have found that Afero substantially increases the number of devices that are actually connected thanks to our onboarding technology and substantially reduces the number of connectivity-related customer support calls. So what is new since the last time we talked? Right. Well, I'd like to highlight two really exciting developments. The first is around our patent portfolio. A few weeks ago, we were identified as having the fifth largest patent portfolio in the IoT space, behind large companies like Samsung, Qualcomm, Intel, and IBM. Now, this is a really huge testimony to the quality of the engineering talent that Afero has assembled. But it's also a testimony to the market gap that existed for a fully integrated and secure IoT platform. Our patent portfolio is a reflection of the benefits that our customers get by using the Afero platform. And what about this Bank of Things concept? 
We've also been doing some really inspiring work with Mitsubishi UFJ Bank in Japan. And this is fundamentally about enabling billions of tiny microtransactions and micropayments through smart devices, all kinds of smart devices. The project is called Bank of Things because it marries IoT with banking and also really lays the groundwork for things to pay each other directly. Afero provides the IoT platform, and Mitsubishi Bank provides the payment processing. And this kind of solution demands very secure connectivity and very secure payment processing with minimum overhead. Each device then becomes its own payment terminal. There's no need for the traditional payment terminal as an add-on device. You get instant response, high scalability, reliable operation, low overhead for payment processing. And all of this has to be there to create this very unique solution. That sounds really cool. So where can people go to find out more information? Afero.io slash go dash big is the best place to start. If you're a developer, you can also see developer.afero.io and make sure to just check out all the resources that we have on afero.io. everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and I have with me Gonda Lambury, who is the Senior Business Development Manager for Cybersecurity at UL. How are you doing? I'm great, Stacey. How are you? I am excellent. So I am excited about this because I actually, when I purchase many of my products, including all of my connected outlets, I look for that UL certification just to make sure my house doesn't catch on fire. So excellent work there. And you guys have since, oh, I don't know, a couple years ago, have been talking about an IoT security standard. So talk about why UL decided to get into this game. Like you, uh, also I, before I started working at UL, I knew UL because of their work in the safety domain. So indeed, making sure that your products don't catch fire, among many other things. When you think about your product that you use in your home these days, many products have network connectivity, like some Wi-Fi or Bluetooth connection, your thermostat device, your TV, your door lock, baby monitor. And that actually brings additional risk, not just safety risk, but security risks as well. So the industry started to ask you, well, what are you guys doing to protect us from these new risks? And that's where we have been starting to engage with industry around security, thinking about security requirements that will prevent some of these security risks that have been paramount, like, for example, losing control of your devices, having someone breach your data and related types of risks. So that's where we have gotten involved as physical products in your home have now become little computers, network connectable products. We want to you know, work with industry and with consumers and smart home owners as well, managing the risks associated with those products. Okay. So there is a little bit of a difference here. Historically, if you follow the rules of various physics, right? So if I want to create an outlet that's safe, I have to follow set rules about, you know, the amount of voltage that goes through that sort of thing, testing, and the product stays relatively the same. But when we start connecting things to the internet, it almost becomes impossible to secure it because things on the internet are always changing. Software is always going out of date. So how do you guys think about that? Because that is, I mean, at the core of IoT security, that seems to be the biggest issue. Yes, Tessie, you raise an extremely relevant point. Indeed, when you think about your products in and of themselves, like your TV, that's no longer a screen with a wire. It's actually a software, and most of its functionality is actually not governed or you know, not managed 
at your TV product level, but it's managed in the cloud. So products are becoming services. It's no longer hardware, it's software. And then the risk scenarios, so you think about in fire safety risk scenarios, they evolve over time, but they are more static than security risk scenarios where hackers, you know, always will find new ways to break into your software. And that's due to the nature of the software as well. So the combination of, on the one hand, physical products, they are no longer the same. They are actually more and more software and software can be updated and is being updated and is not always managed at the product level, but more centrally in cloud environments. And then also on the risk side, risk scenarios are always changing. So that means that as UL as well, and how we help industry, the model has to evolve from point in time, ready, set, go, my product is now leaving the factory. That's where I stop caring about it. You know, it has to be managing products through the entire life cycle. And that's where you all need to step up as well and help for manufacturers and ultimately for end users and society as well with this ongoing assurance that products are good to go, not just when they leave the factory, but as they're being used through their lifetime. So that implies a continuous testing process. So something like more like an ISO kind of standard where you get approved and then you go back and every now and then they come in and they certify you again or make sure that you're up to date. So is that something that UL has done in the past or does it plan to do this for the cybersecurity program? For sure, there's elements of that also into the safety testing and, you know, where there's ongoing follow-up as well and audit inspections. Like ultimately what UL has in mind is we want to be nimble to or customers' needs. So we want to be a enabler to business and to maintain a good quality of products. In the past, we have collaborated with industry to make that happen. And that went beyond like, you know, doing testing on their products when they leave the factory. The collaboration also for safety has gone beyond that. For security, the collaboration is going to be even more paramount. So let's talk about the broad strokes of what you guys are thinking about when you talk about IoT security. What does the program look like? So we have done a few things in IoT thus far. You all actually have a lot of experience and also strong reputation in markets that are currently regulated for security. And regulated, I mean, there is standards that have gained a level of acceptance and adoption, for example, in the payments industry. So the credit card transaction or debit card transaction end-to-end, and there are security requirements for making a secure process and making sure that your credit card and where you pay all of that is secure. So for Internet of Things, not just your credit card, but basically everything that you use in your day-to-day life is becoming a digital or electronic product. We see a need to consider security of all of those products and the communication from those products to networks and ultimately the entire IoT ecosystem, whether that's a smart home or a smart building. And so we've come up with one standard that's called the UL2100 standard, which is aiming for a high level of software security assurance. So testing, evaluating software embedded in IoT products. And that standard has been fairly successful, for example, for medical devices, surveillance equipment. And then we also want to work with industry, you know, to think about how can we get further adoption of IoT security. Do you envision a company having to get double UL certification? So if I'm making a connected kitchen product, for example, I'm going to need to be UL certified for, you know, my fire safety kind of aspects, but then I'm also going to possibly need a cybersecurity certification. So what does that look like for a company that's like, oh, I need to get these, but what a pain or, oh, it's going to cost too much. Yeah, that type of feeling, of course, we want to avoid to the extent possible. Products need to be built to quality and companies also outside of what is appliance increasingly start to see it that way. And that quality doesn't stop with safety. It includes 
security. It includes that the wireless connection actually works well with the cloud, with networks, with other products. So today as well, like actually there's no such thing as one UL test covers all. We want to work with customers and industry as much as we can as a one-stop shop. But there's different elements to consider when you think about product quality. So it's safety, it's performance, it's wireless connectivity, it's interoperability, and it is security. And manufacturers that care about their brand, that care about the quality of the products, they will consider all of these elements in getting to market with a perceived level of quality. And they see you all as an enabler getting there. Let's run down some security features and let's see where they fit into the UL scheme. So this will be kind of quick and short, hopefully. So encryption, necessary? Where? Very important. So, for example, when you think about data that is being communicated from a product to a network environment, so when you think, for example, about a IP camera, like a surveillance, a security camera that is protecting a building, so that camera feed is sensitive information. And if it's traveling from the camera to some cloud environment or some network environment, then you shouldn't be able to intercept the data as a hacker and get access to that live feed. So, for example, that type of video feed, that is data that ideally you encrypt when you communicated from the device to some cloud environment. Okay, what about encryption of data at rest on the cloud? Very important as well. So data at rest in the cloud or data at rest in a device. Sensitive data, you should be considering protecting the data adequately. And that includes, for example, privacy-sensitive data. So as part of UL2900 and other UL programs, sensitive data protection, data at rest, data in transit, you know, you should think about securing that data, whether it's in software or in hardware, when it's in a device or on a server in a cloud environment. What about passwords? Default passwords on devices? Passwords are important. Actually, default passwords, those are not the greatest security practice. So having unique passwords is important. Okay. Over-the-air updates. Critical as well to maintaining overall product quality. So to enable remote software updates is going to be very important. Making that very secure is going to be also important. Okay. Clear privacy policies. Critical as well. So security and privacy kind of go hand in hand. So more and more data is used in devices and also those devices pick up user-specific data like behavioral data. To access those devices, you need to give up some of your data in most of the cases. So to protect privacy, not just your usernames or your, you know, your name in general, but also, for example, thinking about biometric data, it's very important that as you interact with devices and with IoT, that those data are protected and that it's clear to you how your data is being used and that there is a responsible policies around that. Okay. What are some things I'm missing? What else is important that I don't know about? You mentioned encryption, over-the-air updates, privacy, data security. You've hit the major must-have security items. So in general, when you think about software, one thing that is important there to consider as well is that whatever functionality you enable with it, if you want to protect your software adequately, any insecure functionality that, for example, could be accidentally remotely accessed, you should be smart about either disabling it or enabling it in the right way. So think about, same with maybe user data, have this minimalist mindset, like what is really needed to operate a certain function? And if it's not needed, why am I enabling, for example, remote access to it? And maybe have the mindset to disable it instead. Network security in general, even though that may be the first thing you think of, it's still important 
to consider, and it will remain important also as we improve security of endpoints and devices. You can consider your, you know, your router in your home. It's going to be your front door. So whatever devices you enable, make sure that they are behind a router or a firewall. And then think about network segmentation as well. So do you want your computer, for example, to be linked or connected to the exact same network as your thermostat device? Maybe you should apply some smart network segmentation and consider how you organize your devices. That is something that I think about, but I'm very curious because that is not something my companies who I'm buying the products fund can tell me to do. So that feels like not something, it feels out of the UL lane. Is that? Mm, increasingly, though, when you buy these smart products and connected devices, there should be industries investing more in that, like end user guidance, how to securely configure your product. So the manufacturer will tell you, like, if there are certain insecure protocols or protocols being used, network connectivity being used for the product, how to, for example, use your router together with the product to make sure that that network communication is still secure. Oh, I look forward to that. Okay. One big criticism of UL is that in order to see the standard, you have to pay to get a copy of the license, which makes it really difficult for companies to evaluate the program. And I'm curious how you guys, like when I talk to the security community, they're like, well, I don't know if it's great or not, and I don't want to buy it. So how do you address that kind of need for transparency and security with your business models? Yeah, that's a good question. Standards are ULIP, where they also belong to the community. So typically, like our customers, they have free access to all standards. But it's a good point. In general, UL advocates, you know, transparency around requirements and working with industry in a transparent way. So in general, that is very important. Okay. And when should we see a finalized version of this? So you also in hundred as a standard and a evaluation program that we've designed to it, the Cybersecurity Assurance Program, is a starting point. So we've gained some traction with that program and with that standard and addressing IoT security, specifically software security, you know, for a number of various products and in various industries. But we can't stop there. So when you really think about, you know, adoption of security in a scalable way, you need to go beyond that. And that's where we really want to work with industry, leveraging industry programs. A good example is CTIA, the Cellular Communications Wireless Industry Association. They came out with a new cybersecurity certification program. We are one of the partner labs to drive adoption of that program. Then Amazon, for example, in building out their Alexa ecosystem, they care about devices that come equipped with Alexa and the security of those devices. Speaker devices, for example, we work with Amazon to test those devices. So industry initiatives to get to greater adoption of security are great and UL wants to be a partner in those. And we also foresee, you know, developing multiple IoT security programs that can really cover the wide variety of products and manufacturers and start building, you know, levels of security assurance from baseline all the way up to higher levels of security assurance. Okay. So if I wanted to look for a UL certified cyber secure product. So if I'm working with my Echo devices or something like that, I should be looking for UL 2900? Yes, currently that's our certification program. So you can find any UL 2900 um, certified products in UL certification database, which you can indeed access online. And then, you know, more programs, including in collaboration with industry. Awesome. All right. Well, Kanta, thank you so much for coming on the show today. For sure. Thank you, Stacey. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.